The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. This is a show for entrepreneurs and all early stage and SMEs. And we discuss the things that you're interested in. How do we know that? Because you send us emails and you tell us. So we champion entrepreneurs. And we want to thank you for making us the number one business radio show in the world for entrepreneurs. A great piece just came past my desk this morning. And the heading is, this 14-year-old, 14, got funding for his brilliant startup, that aims to fix one of the biggest headaches about school. Emerson Walker's 14 years old, and he's about to change the way schools all over America handle their schedules. He's developed a calendar app called M-Planner that solves the school's trickiest problems. At the moment, School assignments are posted online, school events calendars on the school webpage, the sports calendars on the fridge, the doctor's appointments are on the parent's phone, and the social events are on social media sites. This M Planner app, created by a 14-year-old, syncs them all together so you have the whole thing on the one screen. Wow. Emerson Walker, 14 years old, entrepreneur. He's already raised the funding. We salute you. That's what this program is all about, about entrepreneurs like Emerson. Congratulations. Fantastic. We had a great response last week to the Molly Award-winning viral campaign, Dumb Ways to Die, and at the Cannes Lions International Creativity Festival, Dumb Ways to Die really creamed it. Created by McCann in Melbourne, Australia, it was a giant winner. So if you haven't had a chance to see this fabulous video yet, go to Dumb Ways to Die. And I'm sure that you'll have the same reaction that over 75 million others have had that have watched the video on YouTube. You may also have seen that Facebook's second quarter earnings have blown away expectations on both top-line revenues and bottom-line earnings per share. This was all due to a massive increase in mobile advertising, up from $375 million in quarter one to $656 million in Q2. What was interesting was Mark Zuckerberg, 
with the CEO of Facebook, as we all know, stating his belief that the US simply doesn't produce, produce enough engineers to fuel tech company hiring. So all you grads and all you high school kids looking at wondering what you're going to do, you could do worse than being an engineer because the technology revolution has only just begun. He also said that they're adding 45 million new monthly actives and that every night around 100 million people are using Facebook while watching television. And Instagram, incidentally, has more than 130 million active users. So to all those old school naysayers, and I've got a few of them amongst my friends, who still invest in legacy companies and who say that social media companies are a flash in the pan with no monetization base, remember the dot-com boom. All I can say to you is get a stiff scotch and watch this space because most of these guys ain't started yet. Another piece of information I found interesting this week is that iPad users' share of the US and Canadian tablet market reached nearly 85% in June 2013. So this is the second consecutive month that iPads gained usage share. Amazon's Kindle Fire and Samsung's Galaxy Tablet remain miles behind in second and third place. Also, if you've been listening to this show over the past two years, two and a half years, or whatever it is, since 2011... You'll find that I've been talking a lot about Elon Musk and the fabulous Tesla car, which is currently outselling its Mercedes, BMW and Audi equivalents. The stock has been widely upgraded lately, and without doubt, this is going to send the stock much higher and pretty quickly. When I first mentioned Tesla in early May, the stock was $57, and I told everybody, at that time, just how great Elon Musk and this company is. It's now $128, so if you had bought it when I told you to, you would have more than doubled your money, and I reckon it could go to $150 within the next few weeks. So I told you to buy it. You can't blame me. It would have been a big win for you. Now, according to a report by the Creative Group, 62% of advertising and marketing executives expect to increase their spending on Facebook considerably in the next 12 months. Now, we just talked about the fact that advertising had doubled in the last quarter. So this is on top of that. More than 50% of these executives also anticipate companies will spend more money on LinkedIn and Google, representing an increase of almost 50% from the same survey last year. At the same time, less than 50% of executives expect an increase in spend on Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest, and Instagram. What I found really interesting, and contrary to what I thought was the situation, 74% of marketers at large companies expect a considerable increase in Facebook spend, whereas in smaller companies, less than 60% expect an increase. So larger companies are really getting on board the social media express and smaller companies who are supposed to be much more nimble and in touch are getting on, but to a much lesser degree. 
We also often talk in this program about the fact that there are 2.5 million apps in the marketplace and another 1,500 new apps are joining their ranks every day. And there's also been this huge growth of consumers flocking to app stores. ABI Research predicts that mobile app revenue will reach $46 billion by 2016. That's an 800% increase in just five years. 800% in five years. Whew. However, it's become almost impossible to get your app to cut through the clutter. And consequently, about 99% of all apps fail. It's extremely difficult for consumers to navigate the app market. An app search is still pretty pretty primitive, and app stores are struggling with technologies to make the most relevant apps more readily available. The solution has got to be paid search. According to CompuWare, 85% of global mobile device owners prefer to use a mobile app because of its convenience, efficiency, and its overall ease of use. They also found that once people get used to an app, it's almost impossible to dislodge them. So if you have a new, brighter, shinier, better app, it's not enough to get you downloaded. That's why you need to carefully market your app, not just get media coverage, even if it's rave coverage. And the price of apps also has a marked effect on consumer demand So setting the right price is essential to securing strong visibility, sustained popularity, and of course, continued use. The app's analytics firm, Distimo, analysed the impact of price changes across apps globally for iPhone and iPad and found that iPhone iPhone apps that dropped their price showed nearly a 2,000% increase in download volume while iPad apps showed nearly a 1,000% growth in download volume. So you drop your prices, the downloads go through the roof. And free apps, of course, rule with the lion's share of all app downloads and revenue with in-app purchases within free apps, constituting over 70% of total iPhone app store revenue. So that's a good lesson for you. Free apps and then make your money on the in-app purchases. The other thing you've got to do is engage App Store Optimization, or ASO. ASO is all about improving your app's chances of achieving high visibility. There's a huge increase in the number of ASO vendors who can help you drive app traffic and achieve a high ranking and enhance your visibility of your app in the same way that you use SEO to drive traffic to your website. The the elements that are included in an ASO effort include app name, keywords, icons and screenshots, not a lot different than SEO, and ratings and reviews. The more you build these elements, the better your exposure. So there's a good lesson for you. We need ASO, and you need to either drop the prices of your apps or give them away free, but have 
focus on in-app purchases. And I know walking down a lot of suburbs, not so much malls, but particularly suburbs, and it doesn't matter where you are on the planet, not so much in Asia, I've got to say, but no matter where you are on the planet, there are a lot of empty bricks and mortar retail stores, heaps of them. When you ask these retailers why they went out of business, most of them will blame online shopping. And most marketers remember that the sales process used to be, you know, firstly, attract attention to the product or your store or whatever it is. Secondly, create interest in whatever your product is. Then create a desire for it. And finally, motivate the potential customer to buy it. And then the next step was creating loyalty from that customer. So that was a five-step process, essentially. Well, this comfortable little strategy, that's been turned on its ass by smartphones and tablets. Don't apply anymore. And too many retailers do not realize that in this world of mobile commerce and accelerating rapidly, this traditional process is dead. And marketers can actually influence mobile consumer behavior and their purchase decisions. So most of them give up, but you can actually interfere in their process and influence it. And with the massive exponential increase in mobile marketing, any retailer that doesn't take advantage of these opportunities, well, you're destined for the unemployment line. You are cactus. In the new dynamic, rather than buying being a systematic process, the mobile buying process is continuous because people, mobile shoppers, have these things on all the time when they're on the go. So there are six steps in the mobile purchasing cycle, each of which gives a retailer, bricks and mortar retailer, an opportunity to influence the consumer. Now, the first step is the pre-buy. Now, this is where consumers use smartphones and tablets while they're at home or before they even think about going to the store. And mobile is a pull rather than a push medium. So marketers should position information and messages to be pulled by the consumer according to the person's time frame, their mindset, and most importantly these days, their location. The second step's in transit. This is when the consumer's out and about. With location-based mobile marketing, retailers can leverage information such as location to send highly targeted messages to consumers who have opted to receive offers. So retailers need to create an incentive to get these mobile users to come to your premises. The third step is on location. Once they're in your store, you have the ability to leverage, identify, interact with these customers while they're there in the store. Take every advantage of that. The fourth step is the selection process. Now, this is proximity marketing. You can use various technologies to interact in real time with consumers. I mean, you can even move to real-time pricing. For example, when the customers are walking past a particular product, you can give them a real-time discount offer. The fifth step is right there at point of purchase. With sophisticated mobile self-checkout and the mobile capabilities that are embedded into point-of-sale systems, offers and counter-offers 
can be presented to consumers during the buying and checkout process, right then while they're purchasing. The final step is post-purchase. Marketers need to become part of the conversation as consumers you know, get online, exchange photos, videos, information of recent purchases with all their mobile contacts. This creates loyalty and it creates word of mouth. By recognising the mobile shopper's lifestyle, you brick-and-mortar retailers are in, a are in a position to adapt and master the new skills of mobile manipulation. This enables you to play online retailers at their own game. Now, don't forget, this program is all about you, the entrepreneur or the small business person that's looking for tips on how to be more successful. That is what we are here for. This show is dedicated to assisting entrepreneurs. So if you've got a question, please don't hesitate to email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and we will answer it on air or we'll email you directly. You're listening to the number one show in the world for entrepreneurs, the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. And while 85% of our listeners are based in the US, we have listeners right across the globe. So no matter where you are in the world, we thank you for listening. Now, my guest today is Alan Coleman. Good guy, great interview, and he teaches business professionals, professionals, he teaches business professionals how to identify high-quality prospects, how to get face-to-face -face meetings, and how to close sales. Alan's generated tens of millions of dollars for the companies he works for and teaches his clients how to obtain similar results. And we all know, and I've said this over and over again, without sales, you don't have a business. You can have the best product in the world. Without sales, you've got jack. So this is one interview that anybody trying to sell anybody anything shouldn't miss. This is Bob Pritchard on Voice America Business, and I'll be back in just a moment. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show and the segment of the show where we interview people who have achieved great things and who are making a real difference in the world of business. Now, there's no question that business is really all about making sales. It doesn't matter how good your product is or how good any other part of your organization is. If you don't get sales, you simply don't have a business. My guest today is Alan Coleman, who teaches business professionals how to identify high-quality prospects and then use the quickest methods to get face-to-face meetings and then how to focus, pursue and close new business. Alan's generated tens of millions of dollars for the companies he works with and has coached his individual clients to obtain similar results. Dr. Coleman is the CEO of The Closers Group and the creator of The Closing Zone, a proven approach to closing more business in less time. Alan's new book is called Own the Zone, Dominate the Competition, which is focused on simplifying marketing, finding the right prospects and winning new business, which is, after all, what business is all about. And one of the things that caught my attention is that his clients call him their mentor and tormentor. Makes him sound like a bastard, doesn't it? So I probably need to be nice to this guy. Alan, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Thank you, Bob. The mentor and tormentor. What do you think they mean by that? Well, one of the greatest obstacles that I've found in companies and agencies trying to develop new business is that there's no follow-up. Yeah. A, a, an executive will say, we're going to do this, and assumes it's going to happen, and it doesn't. Or in a, in a smaller firm or organization, uh, there's a push to, to raise revenue by saying, okay, everybody's get out, needs to get out and sell more, and it doesn't happen. And yeah. it primarily doesn't happen because there's no accountability. Right. And that's where the tormentor role comes in. There has to be someone or some group that stays on top of the people who've been charged with bringing in new business. And if it means helping to provide some additional training or some new type support, the bottom line is it's got to get done and somebody has to remind them of that. Okay, so they begin by liking you and then end up not liking you quite so much. (laughs) <laughs> well, the tormentor name was given to me as a, as a cut somewhat humorous tagline. Sure. But I'll tell you something. From my perspective in selling what we do, it seems to have a high level of recognition with prospects. When you say, we do a couple of things, and one of the things that you'll find is that we will torment you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that. that. It's absolutely necessary. So in the marketing world today... It's all about social media. Alan, is social media a help or a hindrance in getting face-to-face appointments and pitching your product, and irrespective of what the product is, and implementing a traditional close? Does social media help you or hinder you? You know, social media for younger generations has a greater role in their finding you, which is marketing. Right. Marketing to me means getting yep. found. Selling is the step that should come after it. Uh, Social media is a great way for organizations to get exposure, to raise their profile. Um, 
I, I like to quote an, an uh, advertisement from British Airways, which is, emails don't end in handshakes. And yeah. the bottom line of that email, of course, they want you to jump on an airplane and spend lots of money. Sure. But the bottom line of the message is you ultimately have to get face-to-face with a prospect in order to close a deal and to keep the relationship going. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Now, in your book, Own the Zone, you suggest multiple ways for sales professionals to close business. So why is it so difficult for people, particularly sales professionals who you'd think it would be second nature to, to ask for the business? I think we need to distinguish in a couple of ways. Number one, sales professionals who are selling products, hard goods, yep. um, generally are, are trained to sell. They may not have it instinctively, but they're trained to sell. The harder sell, if you will, is for people who are professionals who are selling a service. Right. And whether they're lawyers or architects, engineers, whoever they happen to be, uh, they're, they're not trained to sell. They're in professions where... When they go into them, they don't realize they're going to at some point need to sell in order to grow themselves and their firms. And so there's there's a real absence of, of understanding and willingness to try it. And what they don't realize is we have a series, as you know from, from the book, uh, of different steps to be able to close a sale. It's very hard for people to ask for business outright. Right. And what we suggest is what are the steps you can take over a period of months to build a relationship when you can ultimately feel comfortable asking for the business and knowing that you're not going to be offending the prospect or your client. Yeah, I guess when you first go into a prospect, you um, you do your pitch, which is usually well rehearsed and drummed into you. Um, and that's fine because you're in control and you're confident and you're in control. As soon as you ask for the business, you're no longer in control. The person that you're selling to is in charge. Is that sort of a subconscious um, mechanism that stops you from trying to close it? I think it, it can be. And one of the, the biggest problems when you're making your pitch, as you prefaced your question with, is... Too often people are describing how they solve problems, which is not necessarily what the prospect wants to hear. Yeah. They want to hear, how are you going to help me solve my, my problem? problem. Yeah. And, if you, yeah, and if, if you get them talking about their problem and you start responding to their problem, you stand a much greater chance of winning their trust and ultimately getting a yes. Yeah, yeah I agree with that. Um, According to The Economist, 95% of marketing plans are never implemented. Now, this is a three-part question, so bear with me for a sec. The first part of the question is, 95% of marketing plans are never in- implemented, and 97% of all businesses fail. So that's the first part. The second part of the question is, why don't businesses implement marketing plans that they spent so much time and research and effort on creating? And thirdly, what's the solution to this? Well, I think the first part is when when the economist says 95% of marketing plans are never implemented, that's because the marketing plans that that are required, if you go to a division and a subdivision and, and down to individuals in a company and things feed all the way back up, if an individual is asked 
to fill out a 10 or 12 page marketing plan for themselves. And then it becomes a section and then a division and then a company wide plan. Mm. It's hundreds of pages. Yeah. And who's going to be responsible for making that all happen? Um, I, I tell clients individual, I mean, clients in groups of individuals, I'll tell them, look, to me, a marketing plan should have five pieces of action a quarter. Right. Now, that sounds low, except if you actually take five steps with five different people or opportunities or give a speech or whatever that one of those five things is, that's 20 actions a year just for you. And if you're in a company with 100 people, that's 2,000 marketing actions being taken. Yep. And just think about the power of that. So that's, that's number one. Um, and again, no, no follow-through, even with something simple like that, is another problem. Right. Uh, in terms of the fact that 97% of new business fails, uh, I'm not sure that that relates directly to selling or marketing as much as it is seeing they've always wanted to do something, let's go buy this or rent this store and we're going to open our candy store uh, with no business plan, that's different from a marketing plan. Keep sure, mind, absolutely. Business plan. Yep. yep. Uh, yeah, marketing and so on. Right. And, and then, please repeat the last last part of your question, the, the, the third part. I the, didn't make a note of it. The third part was, what is the solution? Well, I think you've probably covered that. And oh, yeah. That's keeping on their hammer all the time to make sure that um, these things get done. Is that right? Yeah. And, you know, when you think about leadership, um, there is a leader, however you define that person. Um, one of my favorite quotes is from um, Teddy Roosevelt, and this is kind of a paraphrase, but he said, leaders lead, bosses get things done. And it goes back to your earlier question. If somebody says, look, we're going to grow our business 5% this year, and I want a business strategy to do it, it's up to the bosses to carry it out. And the bosses, that is the division heads, the executives below the leader, and so on, those people are the ones that have to become the, ter the tormentors. And I think that's another reason why these marketing plans uh, are such a failure because in my experience, going through the exercise really annoys a lot of people that they have to take the time to do it and then they're never held accountable. And so next year when they're asked to do it again, it's like, oh, no, not again. This is another wasted effort. Right. Just going back to that um, Teddy Roosevelt quote, um, a leader leads and a boss gets things done. Doesn't a true leader inspire all his troops to get things done? Um, so is there really a difference between a, a boss and a leader? I think they're talking structurally. If you look at an organization, just for example, there's a president, there may be seven or eight uh, business executives responsible for different operating units. Yeah. You could consider those six or seven leaders as well. But ultimately, the, the number one person, whoever that senior person is, is the overall leader. Right. If that person is smart, if they're smart, one of the key ingredients to good leadership, as you know, is listening to your top advisors and then making a decision. Once yeah. that decision is made, it's part of their charge to help you implement it. Right. So... The res in, inside an organization, the ultimate responsibility for making sales, in reality, is the sales manager, for example, rather than the president of the organization. 
Well, the, the president may set the goals and the ultimate objectives. Yeah. Um, the sales manager, in your example, is one who, I mean, you could, I guess, be a leader and a boss at the same time. But when it comes to growing business, to, to developing new business, getting out and selling, marketing the, the, the pieces that you have to sell, uh, somebody has to lead whatever the, the outgoing team is. That is the team who is expected to get face-to-face. Right. That's often, as we said earlier, a really big obstacle. A lot of, especially professionals, don't know how, feel it's beneath them, whatever the reason is, for getting out and selling. And when it ultimately becomes their responsibility because the livelihood of their organization depends upon it, then the position that you're describing as a sales manager uh, has to not only push them, has to be able to support them with mentoring or training or or whatever it is that they need, but ultimately has to get it done. Yeah. In your keynote address and uh, in a couple of publications that I've read, you describe six laws of leadership. Can you just briefly outline what these six laws are and how they transform potential leaders into great leaders? Yeah, and we've covered a couple of them already. I I think the the first of the six laws of leadership is listening. Right, absolutely. The second law of leadership The second law of leadership is decision-making. And that means after a certain amount of listening and analyzing, you have to make a decision. Yep. Recognizing that if you don't make a decision, that's a decision in itself. And I don't mean that to be confusing. Sure. Um, But if, if, if you wait forever, whatever happens is caused by the decision not to make a decision. Yep. So the first is listening. The second is decision-making. The third is this tormentor role. That is holding people accountable. Right. And we, we, we've discussed that uh, quite a bit. Yep. Um, and let me jump to the last one uh, before we come back. The last law of leadership, I believe, is leaving a legacy. And that's not just a legacy for finances and so on. It's leaving a legacy for the people that are involved, that are working with you, that are going to be at the company or the agency or or whatever the organization is uh, for the next many years. So part of the the aspect of it is making sure that there is a legacy, and it it doesn't have to be one with great personality and, and that kind of thing. It can just simply be making the place strong for people that are going to be there in the future. Right. And then we'll come back. Um, the fourth and fifth, after you communicate and hold people accountable, um, is you have to specifically measure results. It's not enough to say, okay, you, you've been given this charge, uh, sales manager, again, coming back to your example. It's here are the specific results I expect, and here's how you will be measured as well as your troops. Right. And then the fifth step, again, you're communicating after listening, making decisions, communicating them, and and, uh, holding people accountable. Then you have to measure the results. And the fifth step is taking risks. And and that's a tough one. That's a very Um, tough one. It's a very tough one. And by taking a risk, I don't mean a bet the company risk. That would be foolhardy. Sure. But a good contemporary example is BlackBerry. BlackBerry made a decision several years ago, whether consciously or not, uh, to not upgrade their systems and their software. And although they were 
the best seller or among the best selling phone systems at the time, their conscious decision has put their company in great jeopardy. They finally made a decision to get on the stick and come up and do with things, and they're held people accountable, and they pushed in their new systems out, and now they're relying heavily on their salespeople to make it work. And they're just, it, it, it's a contemporary example that's unfolding in front of us. They're in trouble. As to, they're in trouble. They took a, a risk, a negative risk in this, as it turns out, and they're taking another risk by investing hundreds of millions of dollars in their new systems uh, and and back out in the market competing. Yeah. Okay. So, in Lead Like a Boss, you combine leadership with marketing and sales successes. Now, are leadership and marketing and sales any more linked than, say, leadership and innovation or leadership and fiscal responsibility? Is there a greater connection? If so, how? It's probably uh, more of a people connection or a, a, a background training connection between these different components that you're describing, whether it's specifically selling or designing a product or a service or uh, whatever the directions are. But I think the same leadership components are required. Right. The thing about the leadership and selling is no matter what's invented or what's put on the marketplace or how many countries or whatever a particular product or service is sold or is placed, somebody has to sell them. Yep. Now, you can argue as, as to which is more important, the people that invent things, the processing, the production, whatever it is. If they're not sold, nobody gains. So to me, it's although the, the same components are there, ultimately it's selling the product that's going to make or break the company or the agency or the, the individual uh, professional services firm. Yeah. I think that's I think that's true. If you if you don't make sales, the bean counters have got nothing to count. The people in the office have got nothing to process. You don't have a business at all. Okay, let a, a tricky or an interesting question: Who is the best leader? Is it a pragmatic, tough guy like um, Welsh, or is it an inspiring leader like Jobs, for example? Well, he was, he was, according to, to the books that have been written about him since he yeah. died, he was a pretty tough hombre himself. Yeah, he was. Well, I, I think what, you know, I think what they're both talking about in, in both cases, for example, both gentlemen, um, they were strongly driven to make decisions and see that they were put in operation. Right. And so their leadership was really going along with the, the kind of description that you and I are having, discussion that we're having right now. Um, you don't have to be charismatic. You have to be able to convince the people that are in your organization to follow you. Yep. That you you are a hard, you think well, you have a hard grasp of what the problems and issues are, and if you help me implement these, we're going to go places. You know, there, there's... Um, uh, in terms of leadership itself, I can't remember the, the man's uh, name, but I think this best describes a leader. And he said, if you want to lead an orchestra, you have to turn your back to the audience. In other words, you have to be willing to make decisions, to recognize that you may be somewhat isolated, um, but you've got to lead and hopefully inspire those people behind you to follow. 
Right. And, that, and that's where some of this communication and, and follow-through and so on takes place. Yeah, I mean, Jobs was hardly a an Elvis Presley out there on stage, but I went and saw him um, only once. But at the end of his presentation, the 2,000 people in the audience or whatever there was, if he had have said, let's go to the Grand Canyon and jump off, they all would have gone like lemmings. He just had that <laughs> ability to, I don't know, get you... He was like a messiah. He had that ability to make you totally believe in him. What is that? Is that is that a trick of delivery? Is that a trick of words? Or is it just some sort of magnetic personality trait that very few leaders have, but certainly works? Well, I, I believe in Jobs' case, it was a combination of what you're describing as he had a certain magnetism. Yeah. But the magnetism was based on the incredible success that that company had since he started it. He left it and he came back to it. Yeah. So you, you can have the, mag- the magnetism or not. In his case, he certainly did. And, and that may give him more credibility with the people in his organization, which is, is great. But even if you took that personality away and everything else that he was able to achieve was accomplished, I think he still would have had the same reception. Yeah, he was certainly... I don't know that they would have... Yeah, I don't know if they would have jumped off the Grand Canyon, but they might have jumped off the curb at the corner. (laughs) On that note, (laughs) Dr. Alan Coleman, thank you very much for being on the program this morning. It's been great to chat to you. I've really enjoyed it. And if you want to know more about Alan or the Closers Group, go to closersgroup.com. That's closes, C-L-O-S-E-R-S, group.com. This is Bob Pritchard, and you're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business, and I'll be back in just a moment. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, 
please send an email to Bob at BobPritchard.com. That's Bob at BobPritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, No Bullshit Business Show. Coming to you this week, as we do every week at the same time, right across the world. This segment of the show is where we bring you emails from listeners all across the planet. And this week's first email comes from Simon Spicer from Mesa, Arizona. That's not very far from where our studios are based in Phoenix. Simon's email says, thanks, Bob. I really love your show. I've been listening for over a year, and I think my business knowledge has increased tenfold over that period. I also bought a copy of Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets on audio, and I listen to it at the car every day to and from work. I hope that you keep up the good work. I think I've mentioned before that um, you can get um, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets on audio, and that's pretty good. It's not my miserable voice, but it's, it's, it's very good. Bob, my question revolves around the fact that we're a small business and I'm not quite sure how we can market effectively against our much larger competition. Well, Simon, um, I know it's daunting to have to compete against some of the giants in your field because, you know, they've got a strong history, a strong brand and quite frequently huge amounts of money and um, almost always more money than their smaller competition does. However, being positive about it, there are literally hundreds of examples, probably thousands of smaller companies who have taken on the big guys and won. You know, marketing's about delivering a better value proposition than your competitor. Whether they're large or small, it doesn't really matter. It's about identifying unfulfilled needs and desires that your customers have. You know, we've got to remember this whole thing's about customers and it's about pinpointing which segments of the market that you are capable of serving best and with the most appropriate products and services. So the first thing you need to do is determine your competition's weaknesses. For example, you know, larger companies often ignore certain customer segments because they may be unprofitable or difficult to serve perhaps. So by identifying and targeting these areas, you may be able to develop a new market for yourself. And while your bigger rivals might have more resources, because they're big, they often have very rigid policies that are fixed, no flexibility. So by being creative in the products and services that you offer, you can capitalise on those consumers who dislike the way the big companies do business or that my way or the highway type of approach that a lot of them have. Now, Southwest Airlines began with three planes and they targeted passengers that couldn't afford to fly on other airlines or caught a bus or walked or drove or whatever they did. And Southwest have remained mavericks, but they've refused to charge all those annoying small fees that drive you nuts, like charging for bags and charging for changing flights and charging for just about everything. And Accordingly, Southwest have endeared themselves to loyal customers, and now they're the largest carrier of domestic passengers in America. There is also much more of an attitude in big companies of employees saying, it's just a job, 
you know, and very few of their employees really care about the customer. You know, big companies go out and invest a fortune in CRM, but they don't have a true customer-centric culture. And it's much easier for a small company to build strong customer-first cultures, which is a very powerful tool, not only to attract customers, but to retain them, which is much more important. And the larger a a company is, the more it has management, shareholders and investors that are demanding monthly and quarterly results. And this pressure frequently leads large companies to make very short-term decisions that are not good for long-term customer relations. Clayton Christensen, one of the, you know, he's one of the world's top experts on innovation and growth, has done a lot of in-depth research on how industry leaders get blindsided precisely because they focus too closely on the most profitable customers and the most profitable businesses. He coined the phrase disruptive innovation, which describes the process by which a product or service begins in simple applications at the bottom of the market and then continually moves upward and upward, eventually displacing the long-established competitors. In his book, The Innovator's Solution, he describes how this process starts with creating innovations which are targeted towards demanding high-end customers and providing better performance than was previously available to them. The common theme is making better products that can be sold for more money to attractive customers. He found that large customers tend to innovate much faster than the customer's needs evolve. So they end up producing products or services that, you know, they're too sophisticated or they're too expensive, they're too complicated for the customers that they're selling them to. And they sell these innovations at the top end of the market because charging the highest prices to the most sophisticated customers enables them to make the most profit. But by doing this, large companies open the door to disruptive innovations at the bottom of the market. So the larger competitors generally ignore this threat because they're not interested in competing against what they perceive is an inferior product or an inferior service or something that's sold at a lower cost. You know, once upon a time, mainframe computer manufacturers laughed at the personal computer. You know, why the hell are you making personal computers? How about photographers? They ridiculed digital photographs. <laughs> Where are they now? What about when ed- online education was laughed at by the major universities? Well, the screw has come full turn. The most important thing for a small competitive company is to avoid taking on the big guys head to head because that you will lose. The knowledge you know, you've got to have the knowledge of your own weaknesses and choose an unconventional strategy which the large guys are likely to just totally ignore. You're irrelevant. You're a fly. They just swat you out of the way. So figuring out what customers really want is the key, but it's not easy. You need to stop asking customers what they want and instead focus on the jobs that they need to get done and the outcomes that they need to achieve. 
and the you know the social revolution, the local revolution, the mobile revolution presents an incredible opportunity to all small companies because it's leveled the playing field between the big guys and the little guys. But you must remember that technology is only a means to an end. The end being the jobs that customers need to get done. That's what you need to focus on. So entrepreneurs can make innovation much more predictable and sustainable once you understand this and close the gap to what to accomplish what it is that the customer needs. You need to create a compelling and sustainable value proposition. So instead of fearing your big rivals, you know, to attack their soft underbelly by targeting the customers who are not getting the right product at the right price and who are probably getting pretty ordinary service. Simon, I hope that helps. Since you have a copy of Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, How to Blitz Your Competition, we'll send you out a copy of Marketing Magic, a book I wrote with Brian Tracy, J. Conrad Levinson and a number of others. I think you'll find that it's a great read. It gives you a number of perspectives on how to deliver great marketing and we'll send that out to you tomorrow. Each week we try to bring you emails from listeners around the world and I also like to give our women listeners equal opportunity. So my second email today comes from Alison Taylor from Manchester in England. Alison writes, thanks for a great show. I listened to it the day after it is broadcast, so we really appreciate the archive service that you offer. Um, For anybody who wants to listen to past shows, if you go on to voiceamerica.com, look up Bob Pritchard host, you can get on to the archives and listen to any of the shows that we've done since 2011. So Alison's question is, how do we try to keep up with the rapid changes in the marketplace and in the way we communicate and maintain our clients? Alison, (laughs) that's a bloody good question. And I worry about that myself sometimes. Um, I think you've just got to keep up. You've got to read a lot of blogs and the business sections of publications and observe what is happening around you. I get a whole lot of publications each day online. Um, which I go through and pull out stuff that's of real interest to me. And uh, so if you do that, I think that can be a great help. Steve Jobs once said, if you don't cannibalise yourself, someone else will. This means, you know, you can't rest on your laurels. Too many people do. You need to keep pushing the envelope. Even if you've got a product that's going well, keep trying to upgrade it, keep trying to improve it, keep trying to change it. Keep kind of trying to create new solutions to customers' problems. You know, most people in business become an entrepreneur to create change. However, when their business gets established, they stop creating change, which doesn't make any sense. The next thing you need to do, make yourself indispensable. Make sure that your customers know who you are, roll up your sleeves and get in and help them solve problems, write blogs, podcast, just get yourself out there. The world's devouring content. Make sure that you are an indispensable part of that content. You've got to stay aware of technology trends and the impacts they're having. You know, don't be overwhelmed by the fact that 
there's 1,500 new apps a day. Use technology to your advantage. Use Facebook. Use Twitter. Create dialogue with customers and potential customers. You need to continually pose new solutions. You also need to get into the habit of asking why. Marketing guru Seth Godin says, I notice things. If I see something I don't understand, like why is there a line in front of that Mission Chinese restaurant? I try to figure it out. They must be doing something right. What is it? So by constantly asking questions, determining what works and what doesn't, you can keep abreast of change. And the last thing to remember on this is none of this can wait. You need to do it now. The last thing to remember is the, this is the program to listen to if you're an entrepreneur. So if you're a regular listener to the show and you're benefiting from the advice that my guests and I give you each week, please tell your friends to listen. Go to my website at bob at bobpritchard.com and subscribe to my monthly newsletter. And make sure you send me your questions. Email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and follow me on Twitter, Facebook and Google+. And don't forget to be a friend or a contact on LinkedIn. We use LinkedIn very regularly. Don't forget, if you have a particular guest you'd like me to interview or a particular topic you'd like me to address, please email me. I'll give it to you again, bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, I hope you've enjoyed the show. We're pleased to have been bringing you this show now since 2011. It's a heap of fun. I enjoy doing it every week. I learn a hell of a lot and I hope you do too. So I'll be with you again at the same time next week, no matter where you are in the world, to address the critical issues that affect small business everywhere. So thanks for listening to the Bob Pritchard No Bullshit Business Radio Show for Entrepreneurs. And remember, if you're serious about being successful, this is the place to come every week at exactly the same time. This is Bob Pritchard, and I hope you have a fantastic week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.